Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. In season three, we are investigating and exploring what does the street data model look like in action? And today we are thrilled to have two guests with us who are going to help us unpack and animate the ideas of chapter seven in the book. So in a way, this is a bonus episode for season two because season two took us through many of the chapters through the book, but we didn't get to the public learning piece. And it feels so timely to have Carrie Wilson and Jennifer on here to speak about their extraordinary work in public learning for educators because I just was in Puget Sound a couple days ago hosting and facilitating a public learning symposium at the end of a year's worth of street data learning. And it was so powerful to see educators leaning into vulnerability as they share their learning stories. And that's what I'm just super excited to get into today with you all. So welcome to the pod, Jennifer and Carrie. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. We always begin with story. That's how we like to start these pods, our own kind of local street data samples. So we're going to invite each of you to do a little situating of yourselves and your stories. Carrie, let's start with you. Who are you? And tell us a little bit about the origin story of Mills Teacher Scholars, what is now Lead by Learning. That would be my pleasure. My name is Carrie Wilson. I am a white woman born and raised in Texas. My entire family is from rural East Texas, very far from where I live now, which is in Berkeley, California, the unceded land of the Chicheno speaking Ohlone people. And I am the mother of two teenagers and two big dogs. <laughs> I'm an open water swimmer, a beginner salsa dancer and um, really lover of the outdoors. And I also coach leaders and organizations. But um, I've spent the last couple of decades really working across diverse contexts and trying to understand what are the conditions and the practices that really allow adults to grow in service of their work. two decades ago when I was a struggling high school English teacher and was very isolated and alone. And I was trying to figure out the very complex work of teaching and learning. And lucky for me, I had an amazing professor from Mills College, the brilliant Anna Rickert. And she had started up this little collaborative inquiry salon. And I was fortunate to be shoulder tapped to be in that group. And she brought us together every month and invited us to bring our student work in, bring our street data in, she was calling it qualitative data, to really get serious about understanding what was happening for students in their experience of their learning. And the work was transformational for me in terms of my practice and these power of these conversations that I was having with my colleagues at Mills College just fascinated me. And I ended up focusing my master's work on professional conversations and then went along to partner with a fabulous colleague, Claire Beauvais, to operationalize Anna Rickard's work to the broader community. And that led to co-founding Mills Teacher Scholars, um, now known today as Lead by Learning and led by the amazing Jennifer Ahn. 
love hearing all that and especially just the connection between those early methods and the ideas of street data. It's just such a beautiful reminder that street data is just one way of talking about a practice that has existed in pockets of brilliance and different communities for decades, if not generations. So that's really beautiful. And I'm also just super curious, Carrie, I have to ask about your growing up in rural Texas and what you learned there in that cultural context that shows up in your work or even in op- that you work in opposition to, like how does that connect with you know, the ways that you show up as a leader now? Mm, that's a really good question. Well, to clarify, I spent sort of half of my time in the city. My parents had just moved to the city, but they didn't know many people. So we spent our weekends back with family in the in the country, as as folks do. You know, you go back to what you know. You know, I think really the way it shows up is I learned, especially living now in Berkeley and having these rural connections, that everyone has their unique gifts and talents and sort of what we see initially on the surface is really not who a person is. And and so I think that when I started teaching and also leading, it was really clear that the most important thing I could do was to, to work to deeply know who that person is in order to support their development. So being having the the good gift of being raised in diverse contexts really supported that for me. So Jennifer, now you're leading Lead by Learning. So we want to hear a little bit about you. Like, how do you identify who were you as a young person and as a learner? And how did those experiences show up in the work that you do today? Yes. And so I actually was thinking about my journey as a learner. It really started as an immigrant to this country. I was born in Seoul, South Korea. And then I came here when I was two. I'm the first generation in my family to go to college. Neither of my parents went. My dad didn't graduate from high school and I didn't grow up with a lot of financial means. And so as a young person, what it meant to be a learner was really tied to a pathway to a better life. And so it was, I wouldn't say it was transactional as much as it was something I held on to out of necessity but I have to say, uh, you know, the the navigation of that journey was not clear to me. Yes. And it was clear that it wasn't necessarily designed for me either. <laughs> and so trying to belong in something I knew I needed to have a better life in some ways separated me from personal identity, separated me from family. Mm. You know, it wasn't like my family felt very comfortable being part of my learning journey because they weren't part of like a journey to higher ed and beyond, you know? And so the reason why I bring that up is because who I am as a learner now is very different. It comes from more of a position of privilege Mm. because that journey worked for me. And I can have more kind of spaciousness to think about like, who am I professionally? What am I doing and lead by learning and beyond, right? It's not just transactional for me as a learner anymore. And and it relates to my work because I feel like, you know, in its ideal form, school and education is supposed to be a pathway to opportunity, to choice. And I think that's something we would, you know, of course, want for everybody, but 
the fact that 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 system is not yet inclusive and accessible to everybody. And I think part of the work of Lead by Learning, you know, partnering with teachers and, and leaders is to try to figure out how do we make that gap feel, you know, how do we shrink that gap and yeah. really make changes that that invite all people into joyful learning Yes, <laughs> that enables them to have a choice and opportunity as adults. I almost have a similar story. Came here as, as a two-year-old, first-generation, college-bound. And I just love how you talked about the transition from learning being a necessity to it now being almost a privilege to learn in the spaciousness that you mentioned. Like, we have crafted lives because of the education that we've been able to utilize where we have space to think about things that our generation before us they were not thinking about, didn't have the um, opportunity to think about. All right. So Carrie, you contributed this gorgeous chapter, chapter seven to Street Data around the practice of public learning. And we would love for you to unpack for us what is public learning to kind of set the frame for that. And then how is it distinct from other, maybe more dominant culture models of teacher development? Well, I was such a joy to be able to share this work more broadly through the fabulous book Street Data. As far as kind of the big picture thinking, you know, in in the book, Shane, you and Jamila write so beautifully about how the deeper model for equity work is really around using these frameworks that allow for awareness building. I mean, I, I'm simplifying things, but that it's, it really always comes back to this awareness building. And public learning is a practice that activates awareness building. So it's a collaborative routine practice, but with time, it becomes a stance. It becomes a way of being. And what I love about it uh, is that it really activates everything that we know to be true about teaching and learning. We know that teaching and learning is uncertain and therefore adaptive work. We know that that learning is social and emotional. We know that learning involves sense making and grappling and it's messy. And I think this is was maybe the most important contribution of public learning. But we know that when it comes to learning, that context really matters. And public learning puts all of those pieces into into action. You know, it's about shifting the professional conversation from this is what I've done, this is what my students have done, this is what I think you should try, to this is what I'm uncertain about. You know, this is what I need help thinking about. And This is what I'm noticing when I look at the street data on the student's learning process. You know, there there are several different moves inside of of the public learning conversation. There's clarifying the learner's goals. There's supportively challenging the learner. Mm -hmm. It all involves data to more deeply understand what's happening for the learner. And it empowers, right? All of this will em- empower the learner or the educator to name understandings and next steps. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the big picture. But, but what it is, is it's a conversation. And it's a conversation that aligns with our goals around equity and social justice for our learners. And I'm using the word learner because I'm talking not just about teachers. I'm talking about 
principals, I'm talking about district administrators, chief academic officers, yes. you know, for us to really arrive to a pedagogy of voice, it's got to be a systems-wide yes. practice. It's not just a few activities sprinkled here and there. So beautiful. I mean, two things really leap out of that for me. One is like just this idea that it's the conversation. And I think we just woefully underestimate the power of the conversation, underattend to the quality of the conversation. It's something I learn every time I witness your work, um, whether it was a deeper learning dozen or in an online seminar, you know, with some of your teachers, like we are human beings and we exist in relationship to one another, right? So how to really zero in on that conversation and deepen it and enrich it is something you all do so well. And then also this piece around the, the power of context that you were talking about feels like a point of alignment with street data and there's no right place to Correct. start. Yep. Right. Yep. Anywhere you enter is going to connect to other pieces yes. of the system because the system is a living, breathing ecology. And to your point, like the context matters, the local context, the specificity of student experience. So just exciting to hear you talk about it. Is there anything you want to add, Carrie, about the alignment you saw as you wrote this chapter between the public learning model and the street data framework? Well, I just see the public learning model is really the way that street data becomes a vehicle for learning and and practice change, right? So it's the place where the teachers or the principals really get to make sense of what they're seeing. And we know that those multiple perspectives are essential to equity work. I, as a white woman, am very limited in what I can see and understand. I need the support and the care of a colleague to help me see more fully. And one of the things that we really emphasize and lead by learning is that the notion of caring for our colleagues is not yes. it's broader than being nice and and Correct. and it means that we're helping them to see what they can't see on their own we need each other for that yes. so the assumption is like i said that the work is uncertain and that it's complex and whenever you have uncertain complex hairy problems you need to a collaborative partnership a lot of the work that we do when we partner with schools and districts is to create the conditions for that kind of deep collaboration to happen, to really redefine what it means to care about each other as colleagues. I think public learning, it instills a value in the system too. So how is it different, you asked, from other types of teacher learning? I think when we think about improving schools, sometimes the theory of action is if I can just get these teachers to do some of these things, you know, then we're going to make some changes. Mm -hmm. And I think what public learning is suggesting or insisting really to the system is actually these educators show up for students every day. You know, are they perfect? No, but neither is the system to be clear. And, you know, maybe to support improvement as a system, we should start by asking what does this individual, this educator who shows up every day for these kids, What does this person need so that they can learn and grow and improve what's happening in their schools? Rather than having professional learning be this transactional, compliance-driven, culture of fear, you know, thing, how can we situate each and every teacher and empower each and every teacher by first listening to what's happening in their classrooms? And that's what public learning is doing. 
such a beautiful example of something we talk about early in the book, which is shifting from a deficit to an abundance mindset. And I think that we're sorely mistaken in systems when we say, see children through an asset lens, and then we continue to in subtle or not so subtle ways, see teachers through a deficit lens. So you all just hold this beautiful expectation of all of us that we hold teachers with care and grace and push and you know, productive struggle, but through a lens of possibility and abundance. Yeah, I am just, you know, you got to laugh to keep from crying. You know, Carrie and Jennifer, you were talking about the asymmetrical nature (laughs) that we have designed in our systems that like, it's very clear that learning on the student level is social, it's collaborative, it is this whole bodied experience and yet when we now think about the learning in the bigger bodies or the maybe not right like I was certainly smaller than my students right but like somehow we seem to think that adults don't need that kind of learning and to your point Jennifer they go to the compliance I get this question all the time when we think about systems change what are we trying to learn together and is implementation to fidelity really the thing that's going to get to the learning, I love when you use that phrase, Carrie, the learning in service of students, right? So I would love to hear from you, Jen. Share a story of a teacher who radically transformed their pedagogy or their mindset through this public learning process. What street data spoke to that transformation? Yes. And so, you know, when we talk about public learning, it's not like people are, volu- you know, people are coming into space. Some of them are really into being there and some of them not so much. And so this journey that I wanted to tell you about is about a teacher who has been in the field for 20 years. And so to be clear, obviously this person is dedicated to the craft, you know, but wasn't necessarily feeling the community of practice and public learning to start. And the way that mindset showed up in the space initially was to have some deficit thinking about, you know, her, her students and, you know, to have some kind of what we would call some blame game happening, you know, it's if only the student did this, or if only the parent did this. And again, from lead by learning standpoint, this is not an educator who needs correcting. This is all important data for us as facilitators and as a system to think about, okay, what's happening in our system? What's happening in this space? How can we kind of better support this teacher? And so One thing we try to do is say, okay, well, maybe you can be a public learner for the whole group, you know, like let's make it really public and support you in that process. And so this, what I would say, cynical (laughs) teacher, we just asked her, why don't you just talk to some of your students, interview some of your students, record these conversations. This is a fifth grade teacher. What are they, what are they saying Mm -hmm. about the learning in your class? You know, just low stake street data. And so she did and she came, she shared that data with the whole, uh, the whole school. And um, she started crying because I think in listening to that data in the presence of her colleagues, she realized that the barrier she was experiencing is, is not necessarily her own deficit thinking, but like, she didn't know what else to do. Like, I actually care deeply about these students and I, and I've been teaching for 20 years and I don't know what to do anymore to better support these kids. I've tried a lot of things. Yeah. And so her realizing that through the conversation she had, the, the colleagues, not only kind of 
honored her for being so vulnerable in that space, but then started asking her some questions. You know, tell me more about, you know, what has been successful in the class so far. Tell me more about when you say you don't know what else to do, like what, well, what is it that you want to be happening in the first place? You know, like these kind of probing questions, I think supported yes, her to yes. realize, you know, I can do something and maybe I'll try something small. When we think about improvement, the actions are what we're focused on, but actually the driver of the lasting change and transformation is the mindset shift that the teacher experiences. And so the fact that this moment brought this teacher to this realization that actually I have been holding some deficit thinking, and that is the manifestation of my uh, feelings of helplessness and yes. confusion about what to do next yes. um, was really oh. kind of an important thing for her, but also the staff because she is a veteran teacher. Yes. And so to see someone being that vulnerable, I think supported the school actually to more deeply engage in public learning moving forward. And isn't that an important public learning for admin or leaders to witness? Sometimes cynicism in a teacher can actually be that helplessness of like, I'm, I'm so invested, I'm so bought in, and I really don't know what else to do. And so as an administrator, when you start to see some of that um, in your staff members, instead of thinking, oh, this person is burnt out, maybe this person just needs, as you said, more community, more support, um, and more relationship, to be in relationship with others in, in, in a way. And they, they, they might not even know they need that, so they might not be a willing participant, but how do you create that relationship to get them? I think a really often overlooked effort in that relationship building between administration and teaching to create that, the, the conditions that will allow a teacher to learn and grow is simply the acknowledgement that the work they're doing is uncertain and complex. My colleague Anna Rickert used to say, people talk about teaching as if, as if you do X, well, X, then Y will happen. You know, if you just use this best practice, then the reading levels will jump to grade levels in, in six months. If that were true, we would be in a very different place. Right. So I think part of what allows that growth and softening that Jennifer just told a beautiful story about is just the acknowledgement of the current conditions, the true acknowledgement of the current conditions, which is the work is complex. Learning and development take time. It needs support. It needs to be collaborative. It's a trial and error practice. It's iterative. And public learning holds all of those truths. Okay, I'm really excited for this next part of the conversation. People are going to get so sick of me talking about the next book on this podcast. <laughs> it's all I'm thinking about right now is the pro I'm writing a proposal for Corwin in collaboration with teacher leaders around a book that focuses on a pedagogy of voice and agency, learner agency. And so I really would love to hear from each of you, what do you see as the essential elements of a pedagogy of voice for student-level learners, for adult learners? And like, what's the Venn diagram of that? Is it, are they, is it the same thing symmetrically to use Alcine's word across the system or are there different 
kind of features and elements to pay attention to for educators versus young people? The first thing that comes up for me is that I think the most essential element to really holding a pedagogy of voice inside of a system is that the system sincerely is curious about the learner's learning. Yes. It's something that we never really talk about, but a lot of schooling is about having people do activities to, to arrive to a, a, a predetermined destination. Yep. And a pedagogy of voice is bigger than that. Mm. You know, a pedagogy of voice is really about... It, it, there, there's more uncertainty and more complexity. We might not know where things will end up. Mm. And I think that uh, that's just often overlooked. I think this is the hardest piece of the work for me when I was leading Lead by Learning was helping leaders understand that they needed to be curious and invested in what their teachers we're learning that that should really, yes. if you're in a system that's a growing, that's a learning system, a vibrant, yes. thriving learning system, there has to be a concern. And it's not a manufactured concern. It's an authentic wanting to know, okay, these people who are closest to the students that we're trying to serve, what are they knowing and thinking about what's next? What mm. What kinds of new learnings are they discovering about their students that we need to leverage as a system in order to figure out where to go next. Um, So I just, for me, that curiosity is the most essential part. Well, I think it's really connected to this idea of power and who are we empowering. And so in a pedagogy of voice, I think what we're suggesting is that each person student all the way through district leader has an important contribution to make. And in order to make those things, we are going to support them to find and then utilize their voice. And so at the student level, you know, if success looks like students behaved in class, students did the homework, student, I mean, that could be one thing, but then how did that actually empower that student, you know, in their lives, in their learning? Like what actually, you know, happened inside for that student that transforming them to be like a, a more um, empowered person? Same thing with teachers. If, you know, all their kids took those standardized tests and if they did attend, like, is that our measurement of success? Like, where, what is this all leading to? And so, For me, a pedagogy of voice is really saying each and every person here has a role to play in this system. Mm. And if we think about that and cultivate their ability to to have power, choice, and be change makers in their lives and in the lives of others, then that's actually when we can really make some big shifts in our system. South Koreans were a collectivist society. And so there's an individual voice, but there's also a collective voice. And our individual voices aren't mm. necessarily um, a higher priority than the collective voice. They're kind of the same. And so thinking about those things as interconnected, I think is also really important when thinking about kind of how we're leading to a better world, really. I love both those answers, the focus on authentic curiosity 
right? And then this idea of power and do we even, do we believe that student voices matter? Like that's the first part. Is there a belief that we care like at all? And if not, it's none of it's going to happen. I also want to just ask you all to even drop down with me like one level further to the classroom and think about this piece of conversation. What's the pedagogy educator is enacting that allows for that deep conversation to happen that you talked about earlier? I think the first thing that comes to mind is it really, it really goes back to how the educator, the teacher is positioning herself with her students. So to enact a pedagogy of voice, it seems to me essential that the teacher would see herself as a partner in learning with the students, right? In other words, there are some real questions that she has that she doesn't have the answers to. Or she doesn't, she doesn't know how these particular individuals would, would answer the question. I remember, gosh, this was way back in one of our maybe third school sites in East Oakland that we were partnering with at New Highland Academy. There was a fifth grade teacher and she was sharing about her inquiry work. We were sort of using the language of inquiry. I mean, public learning is about instilling an inquiry stance towards teaching, right? That's sort of that acknowledging the complexity. And so of course you're going to have inquiry and not the kind of inquiry that I see in traditional teaching models where you're sort of a teacher is given the question, she's given the data she's using, and she's basically given the answer that she needs to arrive at, right? And I see that also as, as a type of inquiry that's used inside of classrooms. So that's not the kind of inquiry I'm talking about. I'm talking about the really messy, disequilibriated learning path that we know is true learning. This teacher was telling me, I was asking her, well, how did your inquiry work? How did your, your learning change you or change your relationship with your students and she said oh well I do not think of myself in the same way and I said well what do you mean she said well I used to really think of myself as you know the person who was leading this classroom the person who really had the answers and now I feel like I'm sitting side by side with my students mm -hmm. shoulder to shoulder and we're discovering things yes. together and I think that yes. is that is the space that a teacher inhabits when she's dedicated to a pedagogy of voice. Your comments also make me think about something we have to grapple with, which is power. Because in the concept of power, right, like there's Dr. Letitia Nieto talks about there's power in the ways that we know as like the folks who get to make decisions, especially decisions for others. But then there's also the power that kind of speaks to what you were talking about, Jen, about the collectivism or the power that you know you have because it is greater than you and you are a part of that thing that is greater than you, whether that's community, whether that's a belief in a higher power, whether that's your relationship with all living things. But there's that power that also situates the way in which you see yourself, which is incredibly important for, I think, educators to grapple with and wrestle with every year, every, almost every day when we are doing this work of learning with others. Where are we in that dynamic or where are we situating ourselves in that conversation around power? Because that will determine the moves you make and the community and the relationships you seek out and also the why behind 
seeking out those relationships or why you're making those moves, right? Only a teacher who really does see students as a partner in the learning can get to that level of sitting beside learners. Love that. I would love to invite Carrie to just maybe briefly share any traps and tropes you see in dominant approaches to teacher learning that public learning can help us interrupt. And also just connections between this model and the pursuit of equity and anti-racism. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there are a lot of traps and tropes, and I love that phrase that Jamila coined. And Jen, please, please jump in. But, you know, when I think about it, a, a lot of professional learning, mainstream professional learning tends to really be focused on training teachers to deliver a best practice. I'm all for best practices. I want to just make sure that, that, that I underscore that. But, but it cannot be the only kind of learning that the system supports. If the system is in service of equity, then we should see places where educators are making meaning about what's happening for their learners. Because I know that as a white woman, I'm carrying some bias that I'm aware of, some bias that I'm not aware of, and I need a space to say what is happening for my learners as I do this best practice. Without that, I'm carrying so many assumptions that go unchecked so that we really need that space. So that's one thing is that if you're a teacher listening to this and you're just experiencing straight up training and there's no meaning making spaces, something needs to change. You know, the other piece is so much professional learning has, is, is decontextualized, right? Or standardized. Like I said, the best practice. There's not really much talk about context or, you know, or who the students are. Alcine, you spoke so beautifully to this. I mean, it, who the students are matters so much. And public learning disrupts this because it is grounded in these students, this classroom, who I am as a teacher, Right? All those things matter so much. And I really feel like we've got to get to a place where that lo- deeply localized, contextualized knowing yes. matters as much as the yeah. abstract. Yep. You know, I-, I guess lastly, I'll just say that the technical nature of so much professional development, right? That it- it's just like, here are some widgets, take them to your classroom, plug them in, and you know, you'll, the learning will be better. Public learning really disrupts that because ideas are examined from multiple perspectives. You know, like I said before, this focus is on meaning making and the focus is on the learner. The act of public learning centers the learner. So we're not talking about what I did as a teacher. We're really talking about what's happening for students in their experience of learning. Is it, is it supporting their growth? That's what matters at the end of the day, not did I do the practice right. Something I just wanted to add too is that public learning produces a really unique form of street data. When we think about anti-racist work that we're doing, how do you actually get information about the mindsets and beliefs that are housed within us that then manifest in the actions that we take, whether they're microaggressions to macroaggressions. When I get really excited about public learning, it's when through the talking out loud, we all get to see the thinking and the beliefs that are informing that instructor's practices and actions. And by 
uncovering those and making those visible, now we can really begin to address some of the, the root causes that are leading to inequitable practices in schools, not by blaming the teacher, but really by first acknowledging the, the bravery that it took to share that out loud, acknowledging that we all have work to do, and then kind of normalizing that in order to make forward progress, we're going to actually push each other to see what we can't yet see on our own. Public learning is really the source of that street data in my mind. All right, we're at our final question and then our lightning round. Boop, boop. Here's the question. So we want to get to thinking about this from a systemic lens, right? So how does the public learning process at the street level influence the system at the map or the macro or the satellite level? And what are some concrete evidence of change that you've seen um, some systems go through? When we think about large systems, you were kind of alluding this to this too, the decision maker is not necessarily connected to what is happening on the ground. Yes. So the planning, the visioning, the decision-making processes, the structures sometimes can feel very divorced <laughs> from what is actually needed. And so public learning, again, going back to public learning as a rich source of street data, mm -hmm. when leaders are invited into and deeply listen to public learning, those stories on the ground serve as the launch pad to create decisions yes. and to start thinking about yes. the systemic approaches that you want to take so that the system is responding to what is happening on the ground versus yes. creating kind of this dream over here that then you want people on the ground to implement and actually it hinders their ability to make forward progress because now they're trying to do a whole lot of things that are not actually coherent. And so I think public learning is the thing that really can start weaving those pieces together. What I hear you saying, Jen, is it's actually essential to the coherence that a lot of leaders try to get to. That's so true. It's kind of like, why is that the goal that we're focusing on this year? When you're hearing from your teachers that we are either interested in or want to learn more of how to do this thing as so that it can be evidence in the learning of our children, of our students, right? And it's such a disconnect sometimes. Oh, so good. I know. You two are both so brilliant. This is like a whole recipe book for systems transformation. And what I love about it is it's not overly complicated, like there's such a simplicity and elegance to the process as I've watched you all facilitate it that really would change the system if people prioritized it. And I love the intersection of the street data work at the classroom level with the public learning model for adults. I just feel like, do that, y'all. <laughs> Throw out the 35 initiatives and just do that for a year and see what happens. That's it. So we're going to end with a lightning round, 10 words, 10 seconds or less. Respond to these, and I'll start with the first one. Jennifer, you are called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Can I just repeat back for you what I think I heard you say? Nice. Carrie. Take a deep breath. Connect with my feet on the ground. What's a practice or a way of being, whether it's a knowledge, skill, or capacity, that keeps you grounded in this struggle for educational justice? Carrie, let's start with you. Getting back to simplicity, asking who is this person and what are they passionate about? What we pay attention to grows. All right. Third lightning round. What is one form of street data every educator should gather? Jennifer. Vocal learner interviews. 
Carrie. Ask the student, what's going on in your mind and body when you do this activity or learning experience? What's the type of data that you feel is overused? Let's start with you, Jennifer. Great, because we know they're not perfect. Carrie. Standardized tests. And our final lightning round, please complete the following sentence. A great learning experience will. Carrie. I have more than 10 words on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Speak from your heart. Uh, Allow you to show up as you are and reveal to you more about who you are and who you want to become and connect you with others. Make me cry, (laughs) Jennifer. Transform you, connect you, and change the world. Oh, oh my gosh, this has been such an invigorating and hopeful conversation. And I'm just so excited that our listeners get to share some space with you, Jennifer and Carrie, and and get to um, live in your wisdom a little bit. So thank you so much for speaking for the heart and for being so present and for just doing the work that you're doing with educators and shifting systems. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to speak with y'all. Thank you. Super fun. Thank you so much. Street Data Pod is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Jess Alvarenga, and our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support, and a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to get a copy of Street Data, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local independent or Black-owned bookstore. At Corwin's website, use discount code STREETDATA, all caps, to get 20% off. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Let's hope we were coherent at what, eight to nine in the morning. (laughs) What's our thinking look like eight to nine in the morning? Y'all did great.